Namo Tassa Bagawato Arahato Samasan Buddhasa Namo Tassa Bagawato Arahato Samasan Buddhasa Namo Tassa Bagawato Arahato Samasan Buddhasa Buddhandamang Sangang Namasami So for the benefit of those who are not familiar with this tradition, I come from uh, a monastic tradition where we do this chanting when we give a Dhamma talk. And it's meant to be a way of signaling uh, for myself. This is not just chit-chat. This is a time of offering reflections on Dhamma. But it's also meant to be a time for signaling everyone who's listening that it's an important time to listen in in a particular kind of way. And so rather than listen in order to believe, one uh, listens to a Dhamma talk with 95% of one's attention on one's own internal somatic response. So that when you hear something that's true, you know that because your body relaxes. And when you hear something that you don't agree with or understand, you know the body doesn't go through this kind of deep, easeful relaxation. You can just let it go. Sometimes the body reacts and contracts and pulls away. And in that time, there needs to be a kind of discernment to investigate whether this contraction is because of something that's painful that needs further investigation and in fact is true or has components of it which is true or whether it has something to do with a truth has been transgressed And one needs to be very careful if that's the case. So if ever I am speaking in a formal context like this on the Dhamma, and there's a sense of me speaking against the truth, my request is not to ignore that or to leave it, but to find a way to come back to me and talk to me about it. Because this is a situation which is set up and is very um, special. It's a sacred space, and it requires 100 participation of everyone in order to continue to protect its sacredness and to use it for the purpose that it was intended for, which is for waking up. So I speak extemporaneously. I don't plan my talks, and I don't usually speak around a, a structure, and sometimes I weave my own personal life and personal story into the way of describing the, uh, the teachings or the lessons that I'm wanting to explore. And there are times when my own personal material comes in. And so note that. You know, you don't need to do anything with it. But there may be times, because I do speak extemporaneously, where I, I digress from not just being my own personal material, but where I'm speaking in a way where it's my own belief systems rather than my own understanding of the Dhamma. And if my own belief systems are then cutting across somebody else's deepest understanding of what the truth is, then that's a time to take note of that and come back to me about it. Because my intention is to use this as an opportunity for reflection, that each person in her own way can uh, consider what is true and what is beneficial and take what is useful leave what is not useful, but not to let me um, 
let it go if I'm saying something that cuts across your deepest understanding of what the truth actually is. But, you know, probably the best time would not be in the middle of talking. (laughs) 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 Though, you know, one can uh, accommodate if if it's that urgent. Anyway, today is a Sala Puja, and a Sala Puja is one of the um, very significant days of the Buddhist calendar um, because it marks the, the first time that the Buddha gave the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, which was the setting of the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which we chanted tonight, which was lovely, very lovely, and um, has within it all, everything that's needed for the path, for waking up. So it's, it's a complete instruction. So if we were to just take the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta as our only sutta, if that was the only thing we had, and we were to work with that our whole life, it would be complete and sufficient for full liberation and complete realization. It is complete. It's not missing anything. And so oftentimes when we think of the Four Noble Truths, we think of, you know, the Four Noble Truths as Buddhism for babies. It's the basic stuff. But oftentimes the reason why we think that is because we haven't actually taken it into our practice and contemplated it in a way where we understand the enormous depth of what is conveyed and described through its different um, layers, the truths what they are, the Eightfold Path, what it means, and the way of practicing it. And so when we take it as a reflection and work with it, and like in a kind of way where we're massaging uh, water into flour, we're kneading the, the moisture into a substance, and use the Four Noble Truths as a contemplation, we can see how deep and penetrating and liberating it actually is. It's it's profound, very profound. So tonight is a Sala Puja, and so that commemorates the first turning of the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, the first giving of that discourse, but it also is the beginning of the three-month rainy season retreat, which for us here at Mahapajapati Monastery is um, sweet, you know, it's not very many places where there are female samanas gathering together and practicing with Dhamma and living together with the aspiration to wake up and to support each other in that endeavor. And, you know, when I travel around the United States, I visit many, 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 many people, but there's not a lot of nuns that I come in contact with, you know. And so, you know, as a female aspirant, as a female um, monastic, you know, the fact that there's a, a place here where there's requisites that's offered, where there's an aspiration to wake up and to use the place for skillful practice, in fact, is actually quite remarkable, you know. And that the conditions have come together to support this is, you know, testimony to Aya Gunasari's paramita, to her virtue, to her commitment. It's testimony to her own aspiration to wake up. And is also remarkable because, you know, I started meditating when I was 17 and became a nun when I was in my 20s and found it tremendously challenging. 
she decided to be a nun when she was 60, and it took until she was 70 until she actually entered into the monastic life. And I cannot, for the life of me, imagine what kind of a transition that must have been like to have been a, an independent person, you know, professional person, and, and then at the age of 70 become a nun. So, you know, there, it takes enormous courage and fortitude as well as um, foresight to see the possibility of the blessings of this and then be willing to endure the challenges of what's required to make that transition and then and then in what she's done, which is to create an opportunity for others to practice, which is um, very rare and uh, very noble and sometimes exhausting. <laughs> so, you know, it's a sweet thing that we're here together and... It's sweet that we can have a little bit of time together to reflect on, you know, what this means and uh, what the Four Noble Truths are about and how to use them in practice. When I look at um, a phrase or, or one of the descriptions in the Diga Nikaya, the Buddha was saying, um, by not realizing and not penetrating the Four Noble Truths, there was a long course of birth and death that has been undergone by me as well as you. So this, the penetration of the Four Noble Truths was for him, his um, radical claim to liberation and to freedom. That was the thing that did it. And so... Um, when one doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths, when one doesn't uh, penetrate the meaning of them, the result of that is, is that one is bound into this long course of birth and death. In Majjhima Nikaya number 28, there's the simile of the elephant's footprint, and just as the footprints of all, of all legged animals are encompassed in the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant is... Uh, recorded as the foremost among them in size. In the same way, all skillful qualities are gathered together in the Four Noble Truths. So again, we have another, uh, another quote from the Buddha that talks about the significance of the Sutta and the significance of what it means in terms of, um, you know, all positive qualities are gathered in the Four Noble Truths. That's not a small statement. When we look at the Four Noble Truths in themselves, we know that the first Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of Dukkha. The cause of Dukkha is the second Noble Truth. The cessation of dukkha is the third noble truth, and the path leading to the cessation of dukkha is the four noble truth. When I was looking at Dukkha Bodhi's explanation of the four noble truths, um, he had something particular to say about the why he used, why he understood the word noble, and as as a as a delineating factor of these truths, and. Um, 
that escapes my memory right now, so I, I apologize. When we look at the first noble truth, uh, we're looking at the truth of suffering as it's expressed in the experience of birth, aging, sickness, death, separation from the loved, association with the unloved, and the five aggregates of clinging. So when we look at birth, it's the talking about the physical birth of a, of a being into this world and the kind of challenge of what is required in, in making that transition. When we're talking about aging, we're looking at the, the, the way our bodies and minds change, our faculties change, the way, you know, things, um, our skin loses its elasticity in our, in our um, sense organs dim, our hearing dims, our sight dims, our taste dims, our teeth, you know, start to get longer and fall out, you know, various different parts of our body start making a a direct direction towards the ground, (laughs) our shape changes, and, you know, all of this stuff is natural part of the aging process, and yet, you know, when we look at that in contrast with the idealization of being young, which is this culture worships, you know, being old is not sexy, you know. There isn't anything sexy about dentures or, you know, having one's body shift and change in the way that it naturally does. And yet, this is what happens in having a human body as it gets older and these things happen. And, you know, and so that's part of our, that's part of the package. When we have a body, we have to deal with all this stuff. And we need to take care of ourselves and have health checkups and get certain kinds of tests and, and all of that. Because there's more of that as we start to get older. You know, and a body experiences sickness. And so there's, you know, certainly the physical sickness that we can know of, of something that is very transitory. And then there's sicknesses which are chronic. And... Um, and then there's the physical pain that we can experience that just is the natural effect of having a body that is sensitive. And, you know, these things are not always easy to bear with. And oftentimes we have a, a longing that they would be otherwise. I remember when I was 30 years old was the first time I realized that I had hairs on my chin and I was absolutely horrified I mean, I was mortified, like like beyond imagination. And I thought, you know, what on earth do you do? It's like, you know, a crime to have a hair on your chin, you know. And then, you know, but what is there to do? I didn't have any control over it getting there. And, you know, I can find ways of getting rid of it. But it's like, this is what happens when you've got a body, you know. And then I just had my eyes checked, and I need bifocals. And so, um, but the and so there was a you know a thing about whether I can I can put a, a, a thread through and through a needle now. And so because the bifocals were going to cost twice as much in the new lenses, I decided that I would not get them this time and see if I could manage. So I have to kind of look underneath my glasses or take my glasses off in order to do things that you know, 10 years ago was absolutely not an issue, you know. 
And so, you know, just watching, and then my memory, I mean, my memory hasn't been great for a while, but it's, it's, it's noteworthy that there's certain things that, you know, it just, it just, it loses track, you know. And, uh, you know, so there's all kinds of peculiarities about just the, the humiliation of, of having a body that's getting older. And, and, and the fact that it, it, it's not a lot of fun. And it's not very sexy, you know, yeah, to get older. And in this culture, which really praises being young and being sexy, it's something that is uh, not easy to come to terms with for many people. And then there's death, you know. And so, you know... Most people don't think of death as something that's over their left shoulder, that is something that could happen at any moment. We have this kind of fantasy that it's going to happen when we get into our late ages, after we've done everything that we've wanted to do and we've had enough time to go on retreat and we've been able to attain to the levels that we've wanted to attain to and we've got everything signed, sealed, and delivered. And it just absolutely doesn't work like that. You know, a friend of our family is 52 years old and um, had a brain tumor, and which is very aggressive and malignant, and has maybe a year to live. You know, he was in the prime of his life. And it's like one day he's okay, and the next day he's totally not okay, you know. And then we hear of children who get sick or accidents that happened. You know, this year I heard of two um, 17-year-olds in college got drunk and fell over a banister in their high school, in their college and and died you know and they were not bad people they just the conditions were such that that they ended up not having the discernment that was needed in a particular circumstance, and and they're gone, you know. And I was at um, visiting Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, and his monastery in New York, and they have they have um, places where there's ashes kept in boxes for people who've died. So they have a I don't know what you call that a mausoleum. I'm not sure what the right word is. It's something like that. Anyway, they've got two of them, and each of them have a thousand boxes of ashes. In, and the boxes are exactly the same, so the canister looks exactly the same. The only thing that's different is the, is the nameplate on top of it. And you look, I was looking, and you know, you've got a four-year-old next to an 86-year-old, next to a 17-year-old, next to somebody who's 34, and the person who was the benefactor of the whole monastery is one of these boxes, you know. He didn't get a special box because he was the benefactor, you know. He's in exactly the same kind of box as everybody else's. And it's sobering to realize that all of us go that way and that when we do go that way, we're all very much the same. Ash, that's what's left, is ash. And no matter how successful or unsuccessful, no matter how attained, no matter how many mistakes that we made or how many regrets we have, what's left is ash. And that ash, amongst all people and all races and all cultures, is very much the same. 
know, person who is attained or a person who's black or a person who's white or a person who's Hispanic, the ash is the same. It looks the same. So no matter what we do in our lives and what we aspire to or what we accomplish or what we don't accomplish, where we go, we all go there and what the result is, is the same. You know, our bodies decompose and the decomposition process is very much similar. And whatever you feel about death or whatever you think about death or what happens after death, None of us have actually experienced it this time around, you know. So, and we don't know what it's going to be like, you know. So we might have ideas about what we would like it to be like, but we don't have any idea of how it actually is going to be like, you know. And so there's this whole thing which we all will have to navigate, and none of us know when. And this is a universal predicament for every single thing that lives is that death is inevitable and that the time is totally uncertain. And so when we realize that and begin to take that on board as well, that's not just as something that we reflect on as part of the suttas that we chant in the evening time, but a reality to live with, then it really gives perspective about why one would want to live in a way which is very skillful. Because when one lives with a lot of skill, there's very little regret. And at the end of the day, one can feel peaceful. That, you know, the day is done, it's time to rest, and we can just let the world go. But when we don't remember this, you know, we can think about all kinds of things that we want to do, And the thinking of the things that we want to do can mean that the way that we're interacting with each other may not be as skillful as as the potential could be if we had this awareness as a constant reminder of the fact that we never know if this is the last time we're going to speak with this person or not. And so death as a contemplation ends up being a very powerful contemplation, particularly to cut through some of the kind of stuff that gets complex in living with people or living in communities or personality issues or hurts or grudges or anger or fear. You know, just the fact that, well, you know, if one doesn't actually know if this is going to be the last time you'll ever speak to a person, how does that change the way we're talking right now? And so living in community has its own particularities of what's needed in order to bring an ongoing sense of nourishment and health and care and kindness. And the contemplation of death can be very helpful for keeping it fresh and alive and grounded and just remembering the basic kind of principles of compassion and wisdom are so important not to lose track of the kind of goals that we want to see get done. You know. Separation from the loved. So anytime one is close to anyone or anything, you know, when we part from it, there's a kind of tearing, you know, there's a sadness. And I know that when I left Colorado Springs the first time, it was really hard on me because I left, you know, after fairly quickly and I had been settled there for a while and having come from England and that 
whole process of coming out of England was so dislocating and unsettling that to have a little place of safety and sanctuary to catch my breath and to recover and to get my feet was invaluable. And then to leave that pretty quickly because circumstances didn't seem to be supportive enough for me to stay there, it was heartbreaking, you know. I cried a lot. And so when I went back there this time and I saw all these same people, you know, family and friends and people who've been supporting, it was so uh, heartwarming to feel so warmly welcomed and cared for and received and supported. And, um, and so I can see that, you know, who we are and who we feel an association with, a kinship with, when we're together with them, it's a very lovely feeling. And when we separate from them, there's a kind of um, heartbreak. But this time when I left, I didn't feel heartbroken because it, it felt like, you know, I, I knew I was going to be there for a period of time and then I was going to leave. And I knew that the plan is to return and there's a warm sense of welcome for, for that. So it didn't have the same effect. But we can also see that, you know, if we get attached to a cup or, you know, we've got our special mug or we like our sitting cloth or, you know, we like our bowl or, and then something happens and it's not there or somebody picked it up by mistake or is using it for another circumstances, you know, it can feel like the whole world is coming to an end, you know, because somebody's got my cup or, <laughs> and we, we lose, we can lose perspective because of our locating ourselves in the things that we have identified with and that if somebody else is using it or or it's not where we put it it can it can it can be agitating and uh, and so it's also it's fascinating for me that even as a samana even as a monastic you know and I've been gone forth when this is my 20th vasa September Second will be the 20th anniversary of when I first took Papaja, you know. And I can see that, you know, there's still this fear that if I don't have my stuff, I'm not going to be okay, you know. And it's, it's, it's humbling to see the way identity collects around different things. And it collects around relationships with people, friendships with people, and stuff locations and places and things like that. You know, I feel agitated when I don't have certain things. You know, it's just incredible. And then there's the five aggregates of clinging, you know, which is just the way in which our there is an identification process itself with the body, with Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, with perception, with mental formations or sankara and with consciousness itself. And so the, there's a way in which just being alive manifests into the five aggregates of clinging. And if we are not very attentive, what we're getting is the cycle of desire bringing forward, grasping, which is bringing forward birth, which is then giving rise to old age, sickness, and death, which gives rise to suffering. And that cycle is not something that we only see in our life as it transitions from one life to the next, 
but you can see it in a minute. You can see it in a moment. You can see it in a relationship with a thought or a feeling or a mood. You can see it with a with the flash through consciousness of a whole thinking process and the way that we relate to it. And so the five aggregates of clinging ends up being the context where dukkha is understood in a very profound way, what that means. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, and it's an often misunderstanding that, you know, all of life is suffering or that, you know, life is a drag. You know, this is kind of the bad news, bad news Buddhism, you know, which is a, a misunderstanding of the teachings. There is suffering, or the nobility of understanding this is the universality of this predicament. And then we come to the second noble truth, which is there's a cause of suffering. And of course we can see that our culture is absolutely habituated with blame, with finding the cause, locating it outward, and then creating a lawsuit and going after them for it, you know? Where we have a specialized uh, appreciation for blame and being a victim. So this blame-victim kind of duality is absolutely pervasive in our culture. And the Buddhist teaching is reversing this and saying that the responsibility is not outward. What we need to look with, look for, and the cause of suffering is the way in which we are relating to everything that's arising. That that is the place where we will find our key. That is the place where we will be able to realize the cessation of suffering. So when we look at that, then we can recognize that birth, aging, sickness, death, and the khandhas themselves are not the problem. The problem is the grasping, the wanting, the hoping that they are otherwise that they're different. It's not wanting to age. It's not wanting to be sick. It's not wanting to die. It's grasping with the khandhas themselves. It's not the khandhas in and of themselves. It's the grasping of them that is the cause of suffering. And so when we can see that, that opens up an enormous window of freedom because then it means that life can be as it is, but fundamentally it is not the problem. The problem is the way that we're relating to it. And so because of that, then we don't have to put all of the good things and the positive qualities and the nice thoughts and the happy feelings and collect them and push away everything that is not nice or not pleasant or not happy or not okay or make it go away, or somehow engineer or manipulate for it not to be there. Because the problem is not with the positive or negative. The problem was in a relationship with positive and negative, or what we perceive to be positive and negative. And that's a profound key to recognize that everything that we feel has a right to be there and that what we need skill with is learning how to be with it in a way where there's less suffering, there's more ease, there's more peace, there's more compassion, there's more skillfulness. So the second noble truth and the profound investigation and understanding of the second noble truth gives rise to the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. 
And exactly where we experience suffering, it's exactly there where we experience the cessation of suffering. It's not in a separate place. So we don't have to get rid of all of the difficult things. We need to investigate where the clinging is in our relationship with them to be able to find a different way of relating to it. And then, you know, we all have experiences of things can be really challenging. And yet, it doesn't change, but our attitude changes. And there's no more suffering. So the circumstance is exactly the same. Nothing has shifted. But the way we relate to it shifts, and then all of a sudden there's no problem. And, you know, I can see that with people who are not meditators, but who are joggers. You know, they can be in the middle of navigating all kinds of stress, and they put on their jogging shoes, and they go out for a five-mile run or an eight-mile run, and they come back, and everything's fine. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. They've gone running. Nothing's changed. But because the running kicks in the endorphins, and the endorphins creates positive moods, and the positive moods creates perspective that they didn't have before when they were feeling low or depressed or dark, they can see things from another angle, and when they see things from another angle, they can see it's not a problem, even though nothing's changed. So our work is constantly to be able to negotiate where the suffering is, and then to be able to look inwardly, well, what is it that's happening here that I don't want to be happening here? What do I want to be different? And then begin to bring one's attention to that. And through bringing attention to that, we can watch it shift and transform from holding us in a grip to opening up and finding or release the cessation. And that release and cessation is not dependent on the thing that we want getting it, or the thing that we don't want, getting rid of it. And that's really important to understand. Now, obviously, there are circumstances that are complex. You know, so I was sharing earlier today about, you know, there's a story of this nun who was gang raped. And it's not skillful to be speaking about the fact that the end of suffering is all internal when a person is navigating that kind of external horror, you know. They need enough safety. They need enough um, ability to digest the trauma of what they've been through. They need enough um, friendship and community to begin to heal. And it may take a while before they can contemplate these things as an internal relationship of what's arising because they're, they have been brutalized in a way which is uh, tragic. So even though these are noble truths, it's really important that we don't ram them down other people's throats and that we find a skillful way of relating to circumstance that's appropriate for the where the person's at. I remember... I think it was Ajahn Viridamo, in fact. Somebody was saying that, I can't remember who it was, but he was listening, or he had heard a monk or a monastic or somebody in a monastery, I don't know who it was, say to a person whose mother had just died, you know, and who was grieving, you're just attached, you need to let go. You know, and his response was just wanting to punch him out. <laughs> Which I totally relate to, because when a person has... Um, an 
an idealistic understanding about what non-attachment is and superimposes that on to the enormous grief of the of of somebody's immediate loss it's 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 cruel it's a kind of brutality it's not kind it's not skillful it's not useful So the third noble truth gives us the key and the openness to be able to contemplate where we're stuck. And that key is our key to freedom. That's our key. You know? And it's right exactly where we're stuck, which is where we find freedom. So we don't have to get rid of our stuckness. We have to inquire, investigate, and realize the cessation of suffering in the middle of our stuckness. And that actually is quite liberating. And then the fourth noble truth, of course, is the is the truth that is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, and that includes the eightfold path. And the eightfold path includes right view, right thought, or right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And these things are interweaving in themselves. So the classical description of right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And there is the, um, the mundane and the super-mundane right view. So in the, in the mundane right view, there's an understanding of cause and effect. There's an understanding of the benefits of generosity. There's an understanding of the importance of taking care of one's parents. There's an understanding of uh, precepts and morality. And in super-mundane right view, there's an understanding of the truths which actually liberate. Because even if we keep the precepts and we're generous, and if we are um, skillful in all of our duties, there is no assurance that that's going to be enough for freedom. But when we understand super mundane right view we actually can penetrate into that which allows us to be liberated then we navigate the blessings that come from living in a healthy and skillful way in the world as well as being able to be free from uh, dependent on the conditions of the world and together is what I consider a healthy, integrated spiritual life, where one has both the ability to live in the world and understand that ultimately the world is not the place where our satisfaction and happiness is going to come. Right resolve, or right thought and right intention, has to do with the intention to non-harm, the intention for renunciation, and the intention for realization. Right speech is very interesting because when we look at the Vinaya, you know, there's more precepts around speech and there's more stuff around right speech than there is about just about any other thing in the whole Vinaya. And so um, certainly it's a worthwhile topic to investigate and we'll, it will take a lot more time than we will have to do it any justice. But, you know, we can see that speech is the action that comes after thought. And we can see that when people are speaking skillfully to each other and about each other, there is no... that is a very powerful force of 
cohesiveness in a community or in a family or in a workforce. When people are not speaking skillfully to each other or about each other, there are few things that can more quickly dismantle trust and safety and cohesiveness than, than that. And so right speech is uh, enormously important in a community that is living in a way which is supportive and conducive and skillful. And so I feel very happy to hear that Sister Deepa here is you're happy to work with nonviolent communication because that brings specific tools into the languaging of communication that are, are helpful and supportive and conducive and uh, very much aligned with the Buddha's intention, which is to speak in a way which is honest and useful and uh, conducing to harmony and uh, not divisive and uh, and we don't we are not born with these skills you know I came from a society you know I come from California and I don't know how it is but in California I somehow equated wisdom with the ability to speak clearly I thought anybody who was wise would naturally be able to speak clearly and having spent years living in a monastery I realized that wisdom and the skill to speak clearly are not the same thing. You can actually have a lot of insight into the nature of your own mind and not be very skilled at speaking clearly. And so it's a tool, it's a skill that one needs to actually pick up and develop because it is not something that we're born with, it's not something that we learn in school, and it doesn't come from meditation practice. So it's something that we need to work with. And the other thing is, is is that, you know, when we come from a tradition that emphasizes solitary practice and the kind of overriding assumption is, is that if we sat long enough we'll be able to figure everything out, it forgets the fact that when we are living in community and speaking with each other, that there are things that need to be resolved in relationship rather than be resolved in solitude and silence. And that was something that the sisters learned in England, which is, is that we were given this kind of sense that, you know, if we took all of the problems that we were navigating into our practice, that we would find resolution there. And what we learned was is, is that that's only partly true. There's a whole other part of it where we actually need to stay in relationship and work with it there. And so having tools to communicate skillfully supports that. Right action has to do with keeping the precepts. And so this today being a sala puja where we um, affirmed the precepts and made acknowledgments for uh, precepts that were not, that had been transgressed since the last deposita day. You know, there's a way of, of keeping this intact. And then right livelihood has to do with all of the skillful or unskillful ways of, of living. And as a monastic, there are extensive lists about what constitutes skillful and unskillful livelihood. And uh, in terms of the way in which one obtains alms and uh, the right relationship with the lay community and um, the way one lives as an example. 
So in the Eightfold Path, there's the wisdom group, which consists of right view and right resolve, and then there's the moral group, which consists of right speech, right action, right livelihood, and then there's the concentration group, which, which consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So when we're looking at right effort, classically there's the four right efforts. There's the effort to, um, to bring about skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. There's the effort to maintain skillful qualities that have arisen. There's the effort to um, eliminate or reduce unskillful qualities that have arisen. And there's the effort to prevent unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen from arising in the future. When we look at right mindfulness, we're looking at classically the satipatthana, looking at the four foundations of mindfulness, bringing attention to the body as a foundation for attention to settle, knowing what the body is doing, what it is moving, the posture that it's in, knowing when one's closing the door or not closing the door. You know, Mahapajapati, there's the practice with the toilet paper, which is always a practice, because everywhere else I've been, usually there isn't the practice with the toilet paper. In most places, the toilet paper can go in the toilet, but in Mahapajapati, it doesn't go in the toilet, and that's a whole practice of remembering that the toilet paper does not go in the toilet, and then having to fish it out of the toilet once it does go in the toilet. You know, so body and understanding what's happening with the body, where the body is, what it feels like, and then also, you know, the the nine different um, ways of. There's the breath. There's the elements. There's the a- aggregates. There's the um, decomposition. There's the posture. There's many different ways of working with the body, but the body is a very important foundation, and it's important to remember that no matter how. Um, advanced or realized one is, it's important never to forget the body. And it's also important to remember that concentration follows on from relaxation. And so the more that we're able to know how to let the body relax and develop that, the more that concentration will naturally be the result or what will follow on as a result. So learning how to relax, learning how to exercise, learning how to stay with the physical body is a really important part of our practice. So that's the first foundation. And the second foundation is being able to stay with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. You know, and I can see, you know, we can get these big, huge dramas that get blown up about something. And yet if we come back to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's much less complicated. And then the whole thing about, you know, qualities of mind, mind states. And again, that's another place where we can see that it doesn't matter what we are feeling. So from the experience of knowing mind objects as mind objects, an exalted state or an angry thought are equal in terms of their ability to be known as mind objects. So we don't need to shame ourselves or or harm ourselves or, or berate ourselves if the thoughts that we're feeling are not exalted thoughts, you know. But once we see them, it is our responsibility how we're relating to them, you know. So we can't let the fact that, you know, the the, the, the loops are going to be uh, uh, condoning, you know, generating a, 
a stream of, of unskillful speech or perpetuating those thoughts with action or ideas about what we want to do with them. You know. But just as a meditation practice to recognize that whatever arises in the mind can be known, it is all welcome, means that we can stop berating ourselves or judging ourselves or criticizing ourselves when what we are experiencing is not what we think it should be. Who we are, what we feel, how we're relating is not what we think we should be or should be feeling or how we should be relating. We have to stop, recognize this is what's happening and then come into right relationship with that. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is looking at our experience in terms of of constituents regarded to the uh, to the to principles of Dhamma, like are the hindrances present or absent? You know, are the factors of enlightenment present or absent? Can we relate to our experience in terms of the aggregates and what does that work like or look like? Four noble truths. Can we use that as a daily contemplation, as a moment-to-moment contemplation, where at any moment we're investigating, is there suffering? And if there is suffering, can we bring our attention to the cause? And as we bring our attention to the cause, can we stay present with where the clinging is so that we can be present for the cessation? And as we cultivate and contemplate in this way, are we able to bring together the factors that support the Eightfold Path so that we can continue to build paramita, strength, support, trust, cohesiveness, a fabric that supports us keeping the precepts, that supports us moving away from not keeping the precepts, that supports trust, that supports moving away from dismantling trust, so that our little community and the effect that we have on each other and the effect that we have on the people around us begin to see the beauty of what we're doing here, how we're practicing and the effect on our own lives. I just want to close with um, Ajahn Dun Atulo is a um, forest meditation master who was renowned for extraordinarily pithy um, ways of encapsulating the Dhamma. And this comes from a book called Gifts He Left Behind. And this is his rendition of the Four Noble Truths. The mind set outside is the origination of suffering. The result of the mind set outside is suffering. The mind seeing the mind is the path. And the result of the mind seeing the mind is the cessation of suffering. Shall I read that again? Did you get it? I think I did. Okay. And so what this is talking about is the same thing, but from the perspective of attention moving outside of the present moment, or just the pure knowing. So when attention moves outside of pure knowing, that's the mind set outside. And that's the origination of suffering. So any movement towards pleasure or away from pain is the mind moving outside knowing. The result of the mind set outside is suffering. 
the mind seeing the mind is the path when we are able to see this to see the movement of what has just transpired when we can see the mind resting just in knowing or in presence or in pure awareness that that's the path and then the result of that is the cessation of suffering so I find this very um, encouraging and very supportive of the practice and just feel um, really quite quite um, pleased to have a place where I can be for a few months. I've been on the road a lot the last two months and, you know, it's been, um, it's both lovely being able to be with other people and meet them and talk with them and teach and share, but it's also really lovely to be in one place for a while and let the practice go deep and you know we have time for meditation we have a month each and we have time to discuss Dhamma and have a time to discuss Vinaya and you know to manage our own business in a way that supports ourselves and each other and our little community that's here and you know these they're all good ingredients and so you know today um in taking the precepts, uh, we're upholding the morality group. In uh, chanting the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta and reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, we're, we're upholding the concentration group. In making an effort to be present, to show up, to listen, to attend, to practice, we're upholding the, um, the effort group. And so in... The, co- the day today and the way of having all these ingredients together that's also a kind of description of the weaving together of the Eightfold Path that we're bringing together the ingredients necessary for the Eightfold Path and so, you know, it might not seem a big deal to take precepts or to affirm precepts um, and certainly, you know, the way that one does that and the intention that one has around that is going to have an effect but when we remember that the precepts creates a foundation that supports the rest of what we're doing, then it actually is a really powerful thing and very important. And so it's a very lovely way to spend the day, you know, to do the way things that we have to do together today. So um, this is my reflection for this evening on Asala Puja. And again, my um, encouragement is not to believe anything that I've said, but to um, listen from that place of deep connection with your own um, body response so that you know when something you hear is true, it's a, a, your truth or a universal truth, and to pay attention to that. And to take note if there's something that I say that doesn't resonate or make sense and just to let it go. But if I'm ever speaking in a way that cuts across your deepest understanding of what the truth is, not to just let it go, to find a way to come back and talk to me about it. Though I, again, would invite some measure of empathy (laughs) as to the suitable time and place. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.